Welcome, Legionaries, to Legion Cast episode 33, Deliverance Lost. I am your host, Warwick, and joining me as usual is my co-host, Brandon. Welcome, Legion brothers, Legion sisters, and often forgotten, never by me, you emo kids who all play Raven Guard. Welcome to Legion Cast. It's great to be here today. And speaking of emo kids who played Raven Guard in high school or whatever, co-host Paul, thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me back on. Ready to talk about the most underutilized Legion in the Heresy. Gotta agree. I really liked this book. I was thoroughly engaged through 99% of it, and I have very few criticisms of it. I, I do have some, but... Very few. Yeah, I really enjoyed it as well. Yeah, minor nitpicks, but uh, I was really surprised at how much I liked this book, and I'm excited to talk about it today. Yeah, honestly, this book usually gets reviewed very well. I think the major problems most people have with it is how it fits into the greater scope of the canon. That's really where you start to run into issues. Well, before we get into all that, why don't we talk about what's on our hobby table? Brandon, do you want to lead us off? Well... Yes, I'll tell you what's on my hobby table, and that is I'm not telling you what's on my hobby table because it is the Christmas present for our gift exchange. Uh, it's something I'm really excited to do. Um, I'm excited about the person that I pulled for our Secret Santa. Uh, it's going to let me do some things that I've done before, but haven't done in a long time, and then some new things as well, as well as some conversion opportunities. So really excited to get that going, and then our Hobby Roundtable episode in December, we'll be able to talk about what uh, what that stuff is. Yeah, I am super excited for that. I don't have that on my hobby table just yet, but I have been working on some Night Lords. I've actually officially taken the dive, and I've got a, a Leviathan Dreadnought built, and I built my first uh, Cantricar Terminator uh, this morning. Just uh, been 3D printing bits and pieces like a mad lad, and then I ordered five Contra cars from the Forge World website, and then I will have another unit of 10 that I'm converting from regular regular Tartarus Terminators, and I'll have be able to run a full squad of 15, and I'm really looking forward to that. It, it should be all sorts of fun. Paul, what have you been up to? Yeah, I've been uh, just trying to get the Sons of Horus finished. I've finally gotten to the step where I need to start varnishing stuff before I put on decals. It is my least favorite step, and it's the one that I mess up every time. So hopefully we come out the other end of it with some models that aren't completely dusted. That can definitely be frustrating. I'm wishing you the best of luck on that, because I'm looking forward to seeing them. Yeah, I'm uh, going to be trying something a little different. Um, I've been doing this Cult of Paints, like paint scheme. I've been following their tutorials. And they've been using AK Interactive's Ultra Matte varnish coat on the very end step after the glosses and decals and it really like brings down the shine on the model and gives you a lot more control over like the highlights and the look of the model um the stuff i've seen in the videos looks great so i'll report back on how that turns out for me very cool i also got a game in today i played against some space wolves and i thought i did very well i played against uh steven from the improbable war gamers i mentioned them in the last episode but I kind of gave the wolves a spanking. He was still lear learning the army. Yeah, he, we might have done a couple of things wrong, but uh, I had a lot of fun, and big shout-out to him for a good game, and I, I had a ton of fun playing. Well, that sounds like it was a lot of fun. It's, uh, you know, based on what you were telling me, I continue to sit on the hill of suzerain or bullshit, but uh, 
that's uh, that's where we are with that. And uh, yeah, I'm glad you had a good time. So I mentioned a bit ago that I did order something from the GW website. And it's not really the Forge World website anymore. They've combined the two in a most unsavory manner for most people. I've heard nothing but gripes and moaning about this new website. And the navigation of it is atrocious. In the old website, you could sort on Forge World and on Games Workshop, you could sort not just by faction. Within faction, you could also sort by battlefield role, like elites, uh, troops, stuff like that. Can't do that in the new one. So when I was trying to find... Um, I also need to order some of the the laser destroyer batteries, the uh, the rapier gun batteries. They're at the very bottom of a listing of like 117 different models. And you got to scroll to the very, very bottom and you got to click, uh, keep clicking next page or load more or whatever. And it's a freaking nightmare. But what have you guys been thinking about it? I think it's pretty bad. Yeah. Um, part of me wants to be positive with this because I, I like that they've combined Forge World and GW down to one website. Um, but there's a couple of hangups I have, not just talking about how the site's formatted. I, I've spoken to my local shop, and at the moment, it would seem they are not able to get their merchandiser discount on Forge World stuff. So what that says to me is that this new website is designed to, you can order Forge World things and get them shipped to your local games workshop store, but you can't do that with your third-party friendly local game store which is incredibly disrespectful to their business partners, in my opinion, and not something I'm super okay with. Um, the other thing that is in the format thing of the site, it, first off, the site looks cheap. There's, it, it looks like, I, somebody told me that it looks like a shop where you would buy a t-shirt from a YouTuber. And I actually was like, wow, I'm really inclined to agree. But there's just a bunch of small things that I don't like. Uh, you know, work. you mentioned the filtering system. Yeah, it's not great. Originally, the first day that they launched the site, I don't think things that were out of stock didn't go to the bottom. I think they fixed that. I'd have to double check. But I think that's been fixed, which is, is good. That's kind of one of those things. I work in software. That's one of those things that nobody really thinks about, you know, at the time when you're trying to get this thing out the door. Um, so that's pretty forgivable. The thing that's not forgivable for me is that, you know, it is the year of our Lord 2023. And this thing does not have a mobile version of the site. I'm like, come on, man. Like I get on the, the amount of times I get on games workshops website from my PC over my phone is minimal. Like that's just, that's the world we're living in, man. You gotta have a mobile site. So that's kind of my biggest gripes with the, the site. Although if they do pull their head out of their rear end and get the merchandising, the Forge World stuff to their third party partners, I'll be able to live with it. Did you guys notice the ninja price hike on some of the items? Oh yeah, I did notice that too. Yeah. Like so on real what? quiet little uh, there's a, a couple little a couple things bucks. where they just added like five dollars here and there to a couple of the kits. Um, if you're looking through the heresy, a lot of the Forge World stuff got bumped up. Like Justarin went up like 15 bucks. Reavers are up like $3. It's not a lot, but it's just the fact that they did it 
to just little things here and there and didn't tell anybody. It just, it, it rubs me the wrong way. I'm looking right now. I'm glad I ordered the Canticars when I could, uh, Canticars when I could, because they are out of stock again. They just got back in stock less than a week ago. Yeah, that was the other thing I've seen a lot of people talk about is there are certain kits that have disappeared in the changeover. Apparently, GW said that a lot of them will come back They're, as they roll in the updates and things like being able to sort by uh, unit type will come back. It's just for some reason they decided to put it out half-baked. But I guess I'm curious to know what they paid for this, like what kind of process that was like and how long it was in development. Uh, a long time and a lot of money uh, from what I've seen. There was say, an article I, about it where they spent about yeah. six million pounds on this sucker. Yeah. And it's been in development for like a year. It, I don't know why they thought now was the time. This site isn't ready to me. This site does not look ready to me. And they just went ahead and went for it, I guess. Uh, kind of bothers me. I probably would have stuck with the old one until this was more refined because... We had all the options that we wanted for sorting, and they got rid of them, and they said, oh, well, we'll add them in later. doesn't seem like a great idea to me. It's because they're prioritizing the merging of GW and Forge World, right? They're doing that whole Warhammer brand, right? The stores are all Warhammer. Everything's consolidated onto the Warhammer site. Whether it's ready or not, they're you know, business model and plan that they've laid out said this has to happen today. You know, they're doing the video game thing of we'll release it now and patch it to completion over time. Well, let's be clear. I'm, I'm actually going to, I'm not a hundred percent an expert in this field, but this is the profession of my field, not web design, but software writ large. This is the cycle for how software works. Kind of getting off topic here, but like if you talk about talk about video games and how they're like, we'll release it and patch it later. That is, it's, it's called a sprint cycle. And the idea is get what's called an MVP, a minimally viable product out the door, and then you can fix it as you're rolling it out. It, it is actually a pretty good method when it comes to business to business transaction. Consumers do not like it. And I mean, that just get proved over and over again. You cannot sell a car that way. You could not sell a car and say, oh, well, we'll just add the airbags later. It's it's pretty shitty that software just gets away with it. Well, again, it, it's, a, it's something that works for a business-to-business -business situation because you're not, at that point, you're not just, I'm handing you a product and you're walking away. It's, we're in a business partnership as your needs change. I adapt my software product to your changing needs, you know, all of this. It, it's just, it's been adapt, tried to adapt to a business to consumer market and it just doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, we'll see how it goes. We'll just have to wait for the updates and see what rolls through the other end of it. Other than that, is there anything else to really talk about? I know that trader captain finally went on pre-order. Um, there's some Imperialist stuff, but I haven't really been following that too much. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah. uh, did we all get our battle boxes, those of us who bought them? I got one. Yeah, I didn't buy one. I got one. Yeah. So, My, still waiting on the book, but... Yeah. Uh, FLG has, uh, has like four boxes on the shelf. So, pretty happy about that. Nice. Awesome. Uh, not, actually, not that I need another one. Speaking of book real quick, uh, End in the Death Volume 2 just dropped. I got the audio book. 
I only listened to like the first hour, but yeah, seems interesting. We'll see how it goes. I haven't gotten any, any I haven't gotten into any of the Siege of Terra stuff yet. I'm kinda of waiting until we're done with the heresy. <laughs> I've actually I'm read, sure I'll cave at some point. Yeah, I've read everything in that. I've actually probably percentage wise read more of the Siege of Terra than I did the actual Horus Heresy novels. Of course there's less of them, but still. Well that's okay, because you're going through them all now. Yeah. <laughs> we'll catch up. <laughs> all right. Speaking of Horus Heresy novels, should we jump into the book? Uh, one thing real quick, uh, while I had my Praetor and uh, Chaplain on the tabletop, I got a couple of compliments on the cloaks that I painted, and Brandon, you taught me how to do that, so thank you. Awesome, I'm glad that you got that, because yeah. nobody ever compliments my paint. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's always the next game. Yeah, so why don't we go ahead and dive into this book? It should be a lot of fun. Welcome back, everybody. I hope you had a good break. I know we did. Uh, so starting off here with Deliverance Lost. And like you said at the, the top of the show, I really enjoyed this book. Uh, and let me tell you why. This is the first book where I have felt like a Primarch is an actual human. Uh, I think that it's just... The book does a great job of humanizing Korax right after the drop site massacre of like, yeah, this should have some pretty big psychological effect. And thankfully, you know, the book didn't just go the I'm a Primarch and I'm super resilient and I can do whatever it it really made him like it. You could tell that like this hurt him a lot. And I think we're going to get into it more, but this dynamic between those who were on Isvan five and those who were not, I think it's done really, really well. Um, so I'm excited to get into, you know, a detailed conversation here. What do you guys think? Yeah. Overall, I think they did a pretty good job with Korax. Um, the Isvan five stuff I thought was pretty good. I do kind of wish they went into it a little bit more. You get it a lot from, um, commander brand's point of view and it's sort of just dropped in as like he doesn't feel like he fits in with the isfan 5 guys because he wasn't there and then it sort of just gets dropped and then it'll come back and uh, he still doesn't feel like he fits in and then it gets dropped and it comes back i just felt like there was never like him and um uh, his brother agapito yeah agapito never really have the like conversation about it or have any sort of interaction. And I think that kind of comes to the fact that they're playing the Alpha Legion angle, and so they're keeping things purposefully unsaid and vague to keep things, you know, cloak and daggery. Yeah, but again, I actually think it works here because uh, going through an event like that, watching 75,000 of your Legion brothers get absolutely slaughtered by the people who you, you thought were protecting, and then to fight for 100 days guerrilla style with no reinforcement no you know no resupply anything like that like that would put a number on anyone so you know in the conversation when he's like oh you got to tell me about what happened on Isvan he's like I'm not talking about it again like I found that very believable mm -hmm. 
Well, and it's something that I've noticed in in real life. I've I've witnessed a couple of exchanges between uh, service members who have deployed that have t- had conversations with other service members who have not deployed, and there's a very different dynamic between how service members that have gone through a deployment will interact with one another versus how they will interact with someone who has not done the same thing. And it, I, I think this book handles it very well. Agapito doesn't want to talk about what happened at the drop site. And Bran kind of calls him out on it later on in the book. And he's like, you're just different after the drop site and you won't talk to me. And, and they're, they're flesh and blood brothers uh, before the Legion came to uh, deliverance. And so they've got very deep history, but to have this this new separation between them is, uh, in a way, very troubling for Bran and Agapito. Just doesn't, just cannot reciprocate. It's very difficult. And and I think those are all really good points. My issue with it is, is they tell you that Bran and Agapito have this deep bond, but there's not really any context for that. All we're getting is Agapito refusing to communicate and open up. And Bran, like saying, like we're brothers. Why aren't we fitting in? And I'm, I was, I never felt the brotherly bond they're supposed to have. I think they could have done a little bit better job in the flashbacks of doing that. Maybe overall, I don't have that big of an issue with it. Um, I think it's kind of playing on. Well, most people have a familial bond with a sibling, so when they say like, "Oh, we should have this closeness," I think maybe. Uh, Gav Thorpe is here is relying on you. You know what that's supposed to feel like. Yeah. So I suppose, that, and and you know, and maybe that maybe that is a flaw of the book. I I definitely see where you're coming from there. Yeah. I don't know. Just my viewpoint on this second read through. I mean, and I haven't read it in like a decade. Was it felt like Agapito as a character got purposefully dropped to the wayside for the Alpha Legion plot, and it was like I really wanted to see what he was about. And they're like, no, no, we have to be spooky and mysterious. We can't develop Agapito as a character because he's tied up in that. Yeah, and I, I know um, uh, maybe it was a couple days ago, Brandon, and I kind of talked about that. The um, the lead up to the Alpha Legion angle doesn't really climax in the way that, I don't want to say believable. It is believable, but it's just kind of like, oh, that's the way they went. That's how it was for me anyway. We'll, we'll get there. We get uh, kind of dig into the end of the book, but... Uh, the book immediately picks up when the the Avenger. You might remember when we talked about um, what was the when we did one of the anthology books, uh, Age of Darkness. Yeah, right. When we did Age of Darkness, Maniple talked about the story where the Raven Guard ship makes it to Estevan to extract them, and we pick up right here. So Commander Bran is able to extract the remnants of the Legion you know, by the skin of his teeth, basically. And it kind of at the um, the allowance of the Alpha Legion being uh, kind of interceding and getting the, the World Eaters battle barge away from the Avenger just in time. And they're able to slip out of the system. And I thought there was a, a very Raven Guard move here as they're leaving the system. They've got these reflex shields that make them basically invisible to enemy sensors and they're able to sneak up like right on top of an iron warrior ship and then open up their work portal. So they've got their killer fields on, but the iron warriors don't know what's going to happen. So it, uh, was it an iron warriors or word bearers? Do you guys remember? It was word bearers. Oh, okay, uh, I do. Bad. I want to talk about the reflex shields a bit because yeah. I, 
I really love how this is done as well. It's not just some magical bullshit button that the Raven Guard have. And the book takes the time to really break down exactly how these things work. And hey, they are really good at making you invisible. Uh, you are incredibly vulnerable while using them. So, and, and I love that. So it's, it is a very much a risk reward thing that they're doing. And you can tell as they're running through this, um, they're very conscious of it. And when Korax is piloting the ship, he's very clearly done this before and knows the best way to use this tool. Well, and you'll remember they're even running everything else on minimal power. Even Astartes battle plate is on minimal power. They're running next to no life support. So a lot of the legionaries are just kind of huddled up. And uh, I don't want to say in stasis, but, you know, they themselves are running on minimal everything just to get out of the system. And it's not like they can just switch these reflex shields over to regular void shields at the drop of a hat. It takes a long time to get their regular void shields active. So if they're seen, it's a death sentence. And every step that they take is... It is very dangerous, and it talks about how they're coming within, you know, a couple of kilometers of enemy ships in a, in a couple of points. And there's at one point, there's an Iron Warrior ship that has a Nova Cannon on it that's just shooting out blindly, kind of uh, in their kind of guest vicinity. And they miss these big splashes from these Nova Cannons by, you know, a, again, a couple of kilometers. And it's it's pretty terrifying. I think it's very well written. It's like uh, like a submarine novel almost, or a, one of the, one of the old submarine movies. Like uh, was it U five seven one, where they're in the German U boat and they're sneaking through. Oh man, it's it's uh, really really well written. I thought. Yeah, it gave me a real hunt for the Red October uh, vibes when the Russians are just dropping te- depth charges like it's going out of style. Uh, one of the scenes in that movie I enjoy is when the secretary of state is talking to the Russian ambassador. And he's like, you guys have dropped enough sonar buoys that we could walk from Greenland to Iceland to Scotland without getting our feet wet. (laughs) It really gave me that vibe of that's, that was how this, this hunt kind of worked. And then when uh, they get, they get within a couple thousand kilometers of this word bearer ship and then just hit the Geller or hit the warp translation and pull the ship into the warp. And I was like, Ooh, what a way to go. And they're word bearers. They deserve it. Yeah, and I really like the description of what happens when you're in the warp without Geller fields. It's a very horizon, uh, or event horizon, which I don't think we've always been told that traveling in the warp is bad without the the field. But I think this is the first time we've really seen that. And we saw it in Battle for the Abyss. But That's we what don't it was, talk, but it wasn't very good. That. Yeah, well, that yeah. was just <laughs> demons boarding the ship. This was more like actual body horror kind of stuff that was that was a ship with geller fields docking with another ship that didn't have geller fields why <laughs> anyway i don't mean to dig i don't i don't mean to open old wounds but but yeah very cool description yeah my only gripe is i wish erebus was on that ship so you would think that now that korax he's got the avenger uh two other strike cruisers i believe with the avenger from the the raven guard and then they're able to get, were they able to get any of their um, army ships out of there with them? No. Oh, so that nope. was a total loss. They use the army ships yeah. as a, the, uh, as a um, 
distractions so that the Avenger could uh, uh, infiltrate and, and then get out again. Well, you would think that with um, the remnants of the Legion all packed up and on a ship, they'd head straight for home. No, Korax has another idea. So he does send the other two ships back to Deliverance, but the Avenger and the majority of the Legion head back to Terra to seek an audience with the Emperor. And I thought this was pretty cool. All right, yeah, so they, they go to Terra, they show back up, or they show up there, and immediately they're getting threatened by the Imperial Fist, and like, you have to be boarded and inspected. I, I really I really like this, because Korax is like, hey, we're going to play it chill. And his commanders are like, oh, F these Imperial Fists. Like, we're going to we're going to go in and we're going to see the emperor because we're carrying a Primarch. And he's like, uh, no, the situation has changed dramatically. So we're going to follow this protocol. And this Imperial fist captain, I, I don't like this guy. Shock. Uh, You're shocked. I know. I don't like an Imperial fist character. I know you're just, that's, that's not like me at all, but I just can't, I don't like him. He's, Captain Norris? Yeah. I think he's just a by-the-book kind of guy. I mean, he's whatever. He's He can go either way. He's I don't kind care. of written to be a bit of an ass. See, I don't think you're supposed to walk out of this interaction and like Norris. You're just yeah. kind of like, ah, oh, this guy, what a stick in the mud. <laughs> yeah, but by the end of it, they're like bros. And- I like him better on when he arrives at Deliverance to, de- to deliver the power armor. Uh, and he and Bran kind of have a little bit of an exchange, and they're like, yeah, we'll play, place a bet on it. Uh, on who is going to kill Horus. They make a bet, and it, it becomes like a warrior's wager or whatever. I thought that was kind of cool, but this first interaction, I don't really care. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the character interactions, I'll talk about it more when we get to the end, once we've discussed it all, but it is one of the major issues I have with the book, is just how characters interact and are used in this story. Well, the when they get to Terra, it's very frustrating because they're kind of... Uh, blocked by protocol and um, a lot of red tape, that kind of shit. And they're left waiting in orbit for a couple of days, aren't they? And and Korax finally kind of gets fed up and he calls on a secure channel. He directly calls Dorn. And Dorn is like, yeah, I'll figure something out. He basically just gives them docking coordinates. And I'm like, like, I get Dorn is busy, but, you know, one of your brothers that was a hair's breadth away from dying is now in orbit. If that was my brother, I would make time. And, you know, if, I if, appreciate the, I appreciate how Korax is like, Dorn, you find me a place to dock this ship or I will dock it myself. <laughs> yeah. And Dorn is just like, well, I guess if you're going to be doing, if you're going to be like that. So he finally finds them a docking place. He finds them a billet for the remaining Raven guard, but they have the Raven Guard that are there have to be under Custodes super uh, surveillance the entire time, which the Raven Guard are like, what the fuck? We're loyal, but the Custodes and the Fists they're not taking any uh, any chances, and so they're all under lock and key. They're under constant surveillance, and I think it's another day or two before Korax is finally able to get an audience with Malkador and Dorn. And this isn't good enough for Korax because he wants to be talking to the Emperor. And I thought the scene with the Emperor was really well done because, you know, Korax, uh, I also thought that the Hall of, was it the Hall of Victories or whatever on in the palace was really cool because instead of being war victories, they're all cultural victories. Like, 
there's some old pottery from uh, prehistory, uh, pre uh, pre-Unity history or whatever. There's a Titan rover, and Corax is looking at it. It's like the Mars rover, but it went to Titan instead of Mars. And Corax is looking at it, he's like, that looks nothing like a battle Titan. What the hell is this? I thought that was awesome. I thought that was really funny. Well, anyway, Corax gets really frustrated with his audience with Malkador because he's not talking to the Emperor. And he's like, fine, fuck it. I'll go to the... the uh, throne room myself and i'll talk to the emperor and before he can the emperor like what does he do communicates through malkador and they have like a direct exchange and i thought it was uh pretty well done because korax has been it also gets into that kind of uh, post-battle trauma korax has been so stressed out the entire trip from istavan to terra his body his he's not been allowing his body to heal and so the emperor puts his hand on korax's shoulder and heals Korax's, you know, racked and broken body in an instant. And he kind of, they have this exchange and Korax says, you know, Dorne wants me to stay here and garrison the palace, but you know, that's not my way. I have to go out and I have to make uh, Horus and the other traitors pay for what they've done. You know, strike and fade campaign and all that. And the emperor says, yes, I know that would be a much better fate for you. And in doing so, the Emperor gives Korax the, the tool that he's been looking for. The Emperor is going to give Korax all the gene data and information on the Primarch project. So Korax can now Korax can now make Space Marines better and faster than they used to be able to. Yeah, I thought this was a really good scene. I mean, we get so little screen time of the Emperor that anything that comes through is really cool. I think this is probably the longest scene since Last Church. Um, he's popped up as like little flashbacks here and there, but this is the first direct conversation we've had with him. And There was some in Outcast Dead, but we don't talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Um... And also just a lot of really cool background lore on the Primarch project. I thought it was interesting that the Emperor kind of matrix, you know, Korax mind where he just wakes up and it's, I know Kung Fu and how to make a Stardis. Let's do this. But right. yeah, I thought the scene was done really well. Yeah, I particularly enjoyed how you get to see it kind of like blinks in and out because the Emperor's psychically projecting, but you get to see him sitting on the Golden Throne functionally holding the webway shut. So I thought that was pretty cool. It's just a little bit of a, you know, a deep lore thing there for people who, who know that stuff. So it was a fun little tidbit there, but I did like how, I mean, it, it was kind of cliche, but I, I did appreciate that. He's like, Oh, I've got the memories, but they're all jumbled up and I can't decipher it all yet. And all that stuff. But yeah. And it's really cool how when Corex starts coming across certain things, it'll kind of unlock or it'll put stuff together. I thought that was really well done. Yeah, it almost is like he was just sifting through memories from really long ago. Yeah, almost reliving them. Uh, mm -hmm. Just not to get too far off track, but backtracking a bit, do we want to talk a little bit about how the Emperor appears to people? Because I don't think we've ever really mentioned it before. But uh, this one in particular calls out the fact that Korax seems to have the ability to see the Emperor to some extent, as he is, as opposed to this psychic projection that he makes of himself. It sort of flashes through, in Korax's mind initially, the images of, like, a regular man to the giant on, in gold armor that's 20 feet tall sitting on the throne. And it 
it sort of alludes to the fact that when people lay eyes on the emperor, what they see is a mixture of what they want the emperor to be and what the emperor wants them to see him as. And Korak seems to have the ability to kind of look past that just a little bit. Like he catches like a glimpse of like brown eyes back there instead of the gold. And it's kind of a cool little thing. So I think that plays into, there's a passage in the one of the later novels, The Master of Mankind, and you're getting the perspective of a sister of silence. And because she's a, uh, a psychic blank, she has no psychic perception of the emperor, so she describes him, he's just a man. Yeah, he's wearing ornate golden armor, but to me, he looks just like a normal man. It does, uh, it does make you wonder which one, or like what he, which one is he actually? Yeah, what's the Emperor actually look like versus what we've seen? I, I remember the thing that kind of put it in my mind is I remember when they did the cover for the first End in the Death book, everyone was like, why does the Emperor look like he's so big on the top of the Golden Throne? And kind of the idea that people put out is, well, that's not that may not physically be his actual dimensions, but that's him psychically projecting out this image on the top of the throne. That's why he looks so big. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of just a cool idea. Before we jump into the labyrinth and unlocking the Primark project, I think we need to address the, the three-headed the snake in the room. <laughs> Horus knows that the Alpha Legion intervened to allow the Raven Guard to escape. What he doesn't know is why. He doesn't find that out either. Uh, but Alpharius does tell him in this audience he's infiltrated the alpha or the, the Raven guard that their apothecaries grabbed up some guys who had died, um, surgically, very quickly, surgically altered some of their own warriors to look like these people and had them assume their identities and, and escape with the alpha legion. And we do get, uh, the perspective of one of these, of said alpha legionnaires uh, his name is, you guessed it, Alpharius. And it's 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 really interesting. What do you guys think of this guy? Um, because I gotta be honest, he seems like kind of a bad infiltrator. He's not very good at it. There's several times where he like almost gives it up. Or yeah. like when he's doing the training and he uses an Alpha Legion move on these guys instead of a Raven Guard move. He's kind of battling that because he's got overlapping personalities here because the changeover from being a alpha legionnaire to being an infiltrator was very hard and quick. They basically found a dead Raven guard on the field of Estevan. The apothecaries cut off the dead Raven guard's face, stapled it to a alpha legionnaire and the legion librarians then psycho indoctrinated him with some flash memories and now he's expected to just fit in with this very tight-knit legion. Um, I don't think it's out of character for him to say that, yeah, he's going to struggle with that. And it's just like, you know, when you're playing an RPG, if you're trying to bluff or lie, or even in real even in real life, you're not going to be good at it all of the time. And I would say to that, if it was any other legion than the Alpha Legion, I think that would fly. But l- back when we read Legion... It was established. These guys are the most competent infiltrator stealth guys. And they're written 
in those in a lot of the other books like legion as being perfect infiltrators and spies the fact that this guy is making like bush league moves here just feels strange psycho indoctrination or not well i will say um well we find out later on there's more than one there's like three three that we know of and at the very end this is the same guy that almost gives up gives it up at the very end as well so yeah uh, I guess what you're saying, Brandon, I, I'm going to have to agree with it, that, yeah, he's not very good because one of the other infiltrators ends up having to kill him before he gives up information. Yeah, I just, uh, I didn't really buy it. It just didn't really feel in character of an alpha legionnaire to me. These guys kind of are supposed to just, you need me to play Raven Guard today? Okay, I've studied that. And let's go. Especially if these guys knew that they were going to be betraying these guys at Istvan, they would have been on the way there studying all of these legions because they'd be like, hey, you might have to infiltrate some of these guys and, and figure that out. That being said, I mean, we are talking about also the legion of secret agents that brands all of their agents with a hydra. So maybe there is some leeway here. <laughs> I think there is a little bit of wiggle room. Like I said, the clashing psycho indoctrinations I think that would allow some wiggle room, but you guys both make very valid points. These guys are supposed to be the best spies in the galaxy, and one of them almost kind of drops the ball. Yeah, and all I really needed was a line saying, like, this guy was a brand new Legionnaire, you know, because he's yeah. making rookie mistakes, and if he they say, hey, this guy is a rookie, I can buy it. Well, and he very well could be. My biggest yeah, problem... Yeah, but we don't know. That's the thing. Well, we that's, don't know. That's the thing. My biggest problem with Alpharius in this book isn't necessarily that he's a bad spy, even though he seems to be. My biggest problem is he has a lot of screen time and is given nothing. He just kind of like stands there. We specifically were told, hey, I have no memories. I am Alpharius. So sorry, guys, no backstory. And then it's just kind of him like sort of standing around while everyone else is doing things and him being like, okay, gotta, gotta look cool here. Can't give myself up. And that's all you really get from him. He's not as much a character as he is a lens for the reader. There are a couple instances where like, he's training some of the new recruits. And uh, like Brandon said, the scene where he's sparring with another Raven guard and the Sergeant calls him out because he uses this unusual tactic. Yeah, you do. It's just because he's the POV character, it feels like you should be getting more from him. And it, it's just kind of him sort of being in the room, sort of observing and just expositioning to you, like, this is what's happening around me, and these are what these people are doing. And then yeah, Maybe it on. would have been better if we got a couple of different viewpoints from guys in his squad. Yeah. Uh, but it could have gotten really confusing in that uh, because... You know, we know him as Alpharius. They know him as, I don't even remember what name. Yeah, well, that's how cardboard cut out of a character he is. But what I'm saying is that if we got another character viewpoint of him, they wouldn't call him Alpharius, obviously. They might, they'd call him the name that they think he is, which could get confusing because it would be hard to, okay, is, that is the guy again. Okay, yeah. So I, I guess I kind of see where... Where that could have gotten too difficult and cumbersome, especially since, you know, we've also got Commander Bran yeah. that we've got to deal with. Uh, we eventually get some viewpoints from some of the Raptors, um, although not as much. Um, it's more just the issue of 
I don't feel like anything's added by him being the observer. If they had just made it Bran and you followed him throughout the whole book and you knew Alpha Legion were there, but, you know, just focused on the Omegon aspect of it where you know there's agents and they're sending messages, we didn't need the POV from the guy. I a little bit disagree with you there. And only for one specific reason at the end that we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I definitely get what you're saying. But anyway, uh, Warwick, do you want to take us through the labyrinth and getting yeah, to the Primark project? Uh, just to kind of cap all that off, is that I, I maybe we're kind of nitpicking this a little hard. I know that's kind of what we do here, but I, for me, all the spy stuff works. Um, overall, I think I think it's fine. Um, it could be a little better, like you said. There's there's wiggle room that could probably be tightened up. I don't know that we need to be nitpicking it this hard. So the next step after the Emperor gives Korax... Go ahead. Can I just say, I think one of the reasons we are nitpicking it so hard is because we're only finding very small things. Yeah, fair enough. The the overarching of this book is very good. So we're getting into the minutia here because we have to have something to talk about. It's not like the Alpha Legion POV is a glaring plot hole in the rest of the book. I I think overall it's well done. I mean, it is a fun read. I'll give I'll give you that. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. So, getting into the next phase of Korax's plan, he has to go to a secret vault and recover the gene tech. And the emperor has put it in this very elaborate labyrinth, uh, which there is technically no way through it because it's like the um, the ever shifting labyrinth. But Korax kind of has this algorithm in his mind from the Emperor that you can trick the labyrinth itself into locking itself open. So there's just this very elaborate scene of these different trials and uh, traps and pitfalls that that the Raven Guard have to get through. And they they end up losing like a dozen legionaries. Um, Some they're able to go back for, some are just dead. And this scene was really cool. What did you guys think of it? I thought this was very well done. Yeah, I really enjoyed how uh, the Emperor decided to guard his super secret Primark project by taking a leaf out of Kevin from Home Alone's book. (laughs) But yeah, it was very good. Uh, One of the things I I really liked how he figures out how to lock this thing open. And he has has to figure that out because he doesn't actually know the path um, to get through. Because the Emperor didn't know the path to get through because he'd never done it. So he had to go through, okay, all of these calculations are happening. And, you know, I mean, he is a Primarch. He does have the ability to, to do these kind of calculations on the fly. But he's just directing all of these guys, okay, you need to walk this far and you have 12 seconds to do so. And then there's going to be a trap here, so you need to duck and... Uh, I, I do enjoy how he gets the custodies that get assigned to, to help him. What did you guys think of the custodies? Cause I didn't, I was like, why are they here? Because they seem to just be here to tell him to tell Korax. We don't want to do that. It, well, the, they do get, I think Malkador assigns them to the Raven guard Legion. And it's basically because the gene tech is so important. If it ever gets into the wrong hands, you know, it's game over because the gene tech is also something that can not only make more space marines, it can shut them off. So the custodies are there to ensure that the gene tech 
either uh, never gets taken or gets destroyed if it cannot be saved. Yeah, that's the the in-book reason. I think a big part of why the Custodes get involved so much is so that they can be there for the big reveal at the end, which we'll get to. Yeah, and I get, again, the in-book reason for why they're there, but it just kind of annoys me that, that the leader of this Custodes group really just exists to Korax be like, I'm going to do this. And they'll be like, no, you can't. And he's like, I'm acting with the authority of the emperor. And they're like, oh, well, okay. Yeah. That does seem to be how custodes are utilized almost every time they show up. Is it's just, we want to do this. And the custodes go, that's against the rules. They go, ah, quit being a square. And they go, ah, you're right. (laughs) I will say the custodies in this book are written, I think, better than the ones in the previous book, Outcast Dead. Because the ones in Outcast Dead are just fucking useless. Well, and they're used sparingly in this book, which is good. So anyway, they get they get through this labyrinth, they get into the gene vault, they start packing things up. Our boy Alpharius spends too much time hanging out next to the number 20 pod. And uh, nobody notices, which is convenient. Um, then we get into an argument with the custodians about taking the gene tech off planet, to which point they immediately cave. And well, that heading. was like the whole mission. The emperor was I, like, "Here, take this gene tech and go rebuild your legion." And the custodians are fucking shocked that this is the plan. Yeah, it's this is what I'm talking about, though. Is it? It's just dumb. Yeah, that part did feel really weird to me. That it was like this was the whole reason you're sent. Why are we having this conversation now and not before? But yeah, so they they head back to deliverance and. Big beef with this story for me is this is during the rune storm. How the fuck are the Raven Guard navigating through this these tumultuous warp storms so efficiently? They're getting from point A to point B just instantly. Uh, well, they're not. It, it, the book just doesn't sit there and take three chapters of they're lost in the warp. It does say that like they arrive in Terra at Terra like six or seven months behind when they would have expected to without the the ruined storm. And it talks about how they have to regularly drop out of the warp, reorient themselves, go back into the warp. They just don't spend hardly any time on it. Okay. Which I think is actually a good thing because I don't want to yeah. read about that. Now, yeah. now that you say that, yeah. Well, Fair the nice thing about the ruined storm is it has the, uh, the rules of plot convenience. It, uh, it hinders people when it needs to. It doesn't when it doesn't. Yeah, it hinders people right up until it doesn't. But uh, so they get back to Deliverance and they start uh, they start working through this this gene tech and it's going very well for them. They're they're building space marines. They're doing it quick. I think at one point it says that they have a fully grown legionary from start to finish in like a week. And you're like, wow, that's crazy. So they start uh, they start building them. They get the Mark VI armor. I actually thought this was a really cool way to introduce well, the Mark VI armor. Yeah, before we do that, though, I, I did want to touch on the formation of the Raptors, these new proto-legionaries using the Primark data. I thought it was really cool how they described the process, where they talk about um, the one guy, like, getting out of the bed. You know, he, he laid down as a 10-year-old boy and wakes up a full-fledged Astartes, and it's talking about him trying to, like, kind of get used to being in the big body and how he, he feels satisfaction when he gets out of the bed and is, like, towering over the orderly. 
I thought that was just a really cool moment. Yeah, and I on the note of the Raptors, I do appreciate how they they actually do take the time to be like, hey, these these are ten year old children in fully grown bodies. Like they are still have the maturity of a a young child. And it actually becomes kind of a problem. At some right, point. but that's where the psycho indoctrination comes in. They're basically able to, they're trained in their sleep, basically. Uh, but yeah, we were talking about Mark Six. We got our uh, most favorite character in the book, Imperial Fist Captain Norris makes a return. Yeah, Norris shows up and he is delivering a few thousand suits of Mark Six armor and they're being called the Corvus pattern in honor of Korax rebuilding his legion. And this is where Norris and Bran have the, uh, the exchange of who's going to kill Horus first. And Bran says that it'll be Sanguinius, right? And then Norris says, no, it'll be Russ. And they make a wager on it. And they actually bet some, uh, some personal items. Like Bran has a set of keys from back when he was still a prisoner on you know, during the revolution on deliverance, which I thought was, was cool. It's like a, a historical touch. And then Norris has some like fucking, uh, what was it? Like a orc finger bone or some shit. I don't know. It was a battle honor. Oh yeah. yeah. Very so, imperial fist covered in gold. Lauding yeah. how great he is. Yeah. <laughs> so basically they'll just trade junk for whoever is right, but jokes on them. Yeah. I, I will say the, it did seem strange that they went from like screaming to at each other to just being the best of friends. But I did like the exchange. I did like that Norris, even though he, you know, they were trying to be friendly is still taking digs at him. Like, Oh yes. If I win this wager, I can't wait. Cause I've always wanted a set of rusty keys. <laughs> yeah. I like that. I really liked that. So, uh, well, spoiler alert, Omegon's here <laughs> and he is, uh, you know, doing Alpha Legion things, like getting a rebellion stirred up. Um, we should probably talk about Deliverance and uh, the Forge world that it orbits. Oh, I can't remember the name right now. Lycaeus. Lycaeus. Kievar. Oh, Kievar. Yeah, sorry. Kievar, yeah. Lycaeus so the, the, the moon. other moon. Yeah. Well, both, no, Lycaeus is the moons. moon before they rename it Deliverance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So... The, the origins of Korax, which are told in a bit of flashback uh, here, is he he woke up on this prison moon of Lycaeus, uh, which was dominated by this forge world, which was ruled over by these trade guilds, functionally. He uh, grows up, he leads a revolution, Bob's your uncle, he takes over uh, the uh, over Lycaeus, renames it uh, Deliverance. Uh, then they nuke uh, Kieva a couple of times just for shits and gigs and declare independence. Then the emperor shows up, says you're a Primarch and we're off to the races with the great crusade. But these guilds still exist, even though they've been removed from power and the Mechanicum has been put in charge and they're not happy that they've been removed from power. So when Omegon comes along and says, Hey, Horus knows about you guys. He thinks you guys are great. He wants to give you this planet they're like, we are ready to go to war for the War Master. And Omegon talks about, Horus never even freaking heard of these people. So, uh, but he's working with uh, these guilds, and then he's also working with this me secret Mechanicum cult, the Cult of the Dragon, 
uh, work. Why don't you talk about these guys a bit? Because I know Mechanicum is your jam. I'm not super familiar with this cult, but I think it's pretty self-explanatory. They're the cult of the dragon, and that implies the the dragon of Mars. And they're kind of this dark Mechanicum sect that is allied with Horus, and they're looking to subvert not well subvert the Raven Guard holdings on Deliverance and Kiavar, uh, and also kind of probably subvert these guilds as well. And a really funny interaction with this um, Kiavaran noble, this this guild guy that is at this uh, character meetup. I can't remember his name for the life of me, but um, this Order of the Dragon representative um, is there, and this Kiavar noble is kind of hesitant to get involved because he's like, yeah, we know what happened when the Mechanicum showed up the last time. They took all our shit took over and now we don't have anything and this order of the dragon guy goes do not be confused the uh the order of the dragon is nothing like um your shareholders of of old or the mechanicum uh you know things will be different i was like no you're the exact same people you're gonna have the exact same policies you know you're gonna have slaves you're gonna or you're gonna have wage slaves you're gonna turn people that uh that descent into servitors you're going to have work quotas. There's This is not anything different. So this Kiavaran nobleman or this guild member is, you know, absolutely spot on to be hesitant to get involved with these guys because, you know, it's going to be meet the new boss, same as the old boss. And uh, the, the Order of the Dragon tells Omegon that, you know, we have resources and allies ready to go. You know, we're ready to start the insurrection at, at, at any point. And Omegon says, oh, cool, insurrection. That sounds really nice. But as soon as the the, sh- the other shoe drops, it's a big shoe. And Omegon is like, we thought insurrection. They meant all-out war. And it's very representative in what they bring to the table when that conflict fi- fi- finally kicks off. Yeah, which we'll definitely get to. This, honestly, anything that uh, Omegon is in, I really liked. I thought it was well-written. It was handled better and this is kind of going back to why i said we should have just had more omegon what we didn't need the alfarious stuff because this is what i wanted to see was the spy stuff not guy describing a room full of raven guard yeah i i enjoyed the omegon stuff as well but uh let's jump back to the raven guard a bit so they got these new raptors uh they decided to load them up in the mark six because the advanced systems will compensate for their lack of training uh, how that works doesn't make any sense to me, but sure, we'll take it. And uh, they they take them off world. Actually, they take out go take out a word bearer's garrison nearby. But Korax makes it pretty clear that he's got his eyes on a bigger prize, and that prize is the perfect fortress, uh, which is held by the emperor's children nearby. And he what he says, you know, we got to ramp up production on these legionaries because we got to have a full legion to take this fortress. He, uh, jumping back to Omegon, he realizes how production is ramping up, says, hey, we got to slow this down. The Order of the Dragon gives him a canister, says inject this into the, the gene tech, and uh, they'll have a real problem. And so he hands it off to his boy Alpharius uh, through their spy networks and all said things to inject into their, their latest batch and kind of corrupt the gene tech, which they find out later uses essentially what appears to be raw warp energy 
that they're just shooting right into the gene seed. Oh, I was going to say, this was another plot point that ran weird with me, talking about how the Alpha Legion are characterized in this book. They just took this unnamed substance from, you know, this tech priest and like, yeah, cool, this will spike it and ask zero questions. Uh, we'll get into it in a minute, but like Omegon's going to confront the guy later and be like, wait a minute, this was warp tech? This is not what I signed up for. And it was like, well, then why'd you take it? I don't know. It's just very strange. No, I, yeah, I kind of agree. It, it seems like to be their purview of knowing everything, they would absolutely want to know what this is, what kind of uh, adverse effects it was going to have. Yeah, 100%. I do like how they do, they get the, uh, the they do the communications and stuff to get the information to Omegon, and then Omegon gets the, the canister back to them. It's very subterfuge. It's very... Uh, you know, spy games stuff, and I, I really did enjoy that. Oh yeah, I was gonna say. Speaking of spy games, uh, the next kind of thing that we're having happening throughout the book is Bran is starting to get uh, reports from uh, what was the the rebellion lady, the comms officer. I'm blanking on her name right now, but either way, Bran's been getting information from an adjective that a lot of like unencrypted messages or encrypted messages are being sent around that are unauthorized and they're all being sent from Agapito's personal channel. And uh, so the Raven Guard are going to start doing a little subterfuge and spy work, trying to figure out who it is sending these transmissions. Of course, we as the readers know that it's Omegon and Alpharius and the other agents, but Bran's going to start to figure that out and he starts to suspect Agapito. He does confront him, and it kind of just goes nowhere, where Agapito just sort of says, I'm hurt that you would even accuse me. And then Bran goes, ah, you right. And then they walk away. And you're like, well, wait a minute. Like, that's it? And also, you didn't tell Korax this is happening? In fact, he specifically says, don't tell Korax. I'll tell him after I figure out what's going on. And it's like, isn't you you fear subterfuge inside the Raven Spire, and you don't think the Primarch needs to be involved? But I don't know. It was a very strange arc, but it is something that's going on throughout the book. Is there the subplot of them like doubting each other and trying to figure out who's in, who's infiltrating who kind of thing? And it's the kind of doubt that has very dire consequences. If this was just like, you know, did did a case of ammo went missing or something? That's very different from a senior commander with access codes to the Raven Spire might be compromised. It's a very different level of uh, of consequence. Yeah, I didn't love this either. Um, especially, I really hate how it's resolved. It's like kind of my biggest gripe with the book. Yeah, so that's been going on. Uh, meanwhile, the production of the Raptors, which is what we're calling these new proto-marines, is moved into full production. Despite a lot of the Raven Guard commanders holding a lot of very loudly spoken doubts. Korax is like, no, the Legion has to be rebuilt, uh, rebuilt now. We need to do this. Start bringing in all the recruits. And I think the by the time we get to the first battle, I think they had 500 in production. And by the end of the book, we're going to be having somewhere close to like 2,500. Yeah, because Corex, Corex is like, we're going to do a test batch of 500. Yeah. And then the next touch, the uh, next stage of production is going to be like 2,000. Yeah. And they specifically break out the Mark VI armor for them 
as a way to compensate for their lack of experience, we'll give them the best tech and have them uh, field test it. Something that I think is important here is a lot of the side conversations that are happening with other characters, it's heavily emphasized that the Raven Guard are about striking quickly and withdrawing, about patience over anything else. Um, and this is where you start to see Korax sort of throwing that out the window. Um, and you see a lot of the commanders, especially Agapito, are starting to be like, hey, Korax, now's not the time to be rash. Maybe we should scale this back, but Korax won't have it. Um, I Kind of going off of Brandon's point at the beginning, I thought this was another really good way to show how much Istvan really affected Korax, that he's willing to throw out Legion doctrine and practice for, you know, the rebuild. So I thought that was a cool little thing. Yeah, he definitely displays that his uh, judgment gets a bit compromised there at times. I will say, we kind of mentioned that branching out the Alpha Legion would have given too many storylines, but it feels like this book does have a lot of plots. There's a lot of characters kind of acting independently of each other. Yeah, um, and they don't truly tie together yeah. in the end. Um, not that I don't think that they all have satisfying endings, but... It, it definitely is the wow, case. There's some that don't. Like, I mean, we haven't mentioned the Cabal at all, which there is a Cabal character that had a scene. We haven't mentioned the Therians at all, and they had like a lot of screen time for something that pans out to we get left on a planet. Yeah, that can be a little frustrating because it was the Therian commander who was having premonitions to go to Istvan to rescue Korax. And he gets left behind after the perfect fortress. But oh I think, yeah, they never addressed that. I forgot. I was going to bring that yeah, up. They never addressed that. I, at the I beginning of the it. book, Korax goes, "Hmm, there's something going on with this Therian guy and Bran. I need to look into that." Never addressed again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of lame. But you know, eventually, uh, as production is scaling up with the new Raptors the main conflict kicks off here on Deliverance, or at least some conflict kicks, kicks off. The Order of the Dragon and the Guilds make their move. And when I say the Order of the Dragon make their move, they drop a fucking Titan Legion on the planet. And that's when Not Omegon... Not Titan Legion, an Imperator. An, 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 yeah, an and, Imperator and a couple and, Warhounds. Uh, Omegon is like, oh, I didn't realize how well-resourced they were. And he's even Omegon, a Primarch, is taken back by this. He's like, we didn't even know. And so it's a, a full-scale conflict, and the the Raven Guard are doing their best to uh, to defend themselves, all while Alfarius, all three Alfarius, Alfarii, I don't know how you'd plural that, Alfariuses, uh, they make their move. And I thought one of the scenes with um, one of these agents is pretty funny to me because He's with um, two other squad mates, his sergeant and one of his squaddies. And he kills his squaddie with a knife, and the sergeant is on, like, uh, a level below him. And the sergeant is like, <laughs> we, we need to go. And this is this is hilarious to me. The Alpha Legionnaire is just like, oh, take this, and drops a grenade down the well. The sergeant catches it and realizes it's a primed grenade, and it blows up. <laughs> 
Which I here take this. <laughs> I, I will say we that gloss, one was pretty funny. Yeah, yes, we I lost over the battles a lot, but they are really fun and well written. Yeah, they. I thought they were well written. You get um, you know, these several vignettes right in a row, and there's the the subplot with the the apothecary. Um, oh, yes, Vincente name. Six. Yeah, Vincente Six, which I think is a cool name. Again, it's. And, we're talking about there's so many plot lines in here that yeah, we're and like a lot of characters over a lot of them. This this story does oh, have a little bit of We didn't even talk about the raptors it. mutating. Um, before that, I want to go into a little backstory of Vincente Six. He was he's only been an apothecary for about five years. He's only been in the apothecary for five years. The casualties on Istavan were so bad. He is now chief apothecary. So this very. Uh, very fresh to the game almost is now in charge of rebuilding the legion so it's you know a very big burden for him yeah and he's been the one that's been uh working in tandem with the mechanicus guy and building the raptors uh to the point of the mutation i think we're at that point now i guess we kind of skipped over it a little bit with the guild attack but um yeah during the trial run after the alpha legion have used their demon warp magic stuff to spike the gene seed um, as soon as they entered combat and like had their adrenaline spike it set off this chain reaction where a bunch of the raptors started mutating and uh, basically Korax temporarily shuts down the project and quarantines them until they can figure out what's going on and that's when the guild launches the imperator titan and starts messing stuff up um, of course the reason for that is it's all a cover omegon has activated all of the Alpharius's within the Raven Guard and says, now's the time, let's make our move on the Gene Seed. Yeah, again, just uh, kind of like talking about the here, take this with the grenade. The battle is pretty quick paced. It's an easy read. It's really fun. But yeah, you just get to kind of see the Alpha Legion sort of moving through the forces of the Raven Guard and just sort of like you get little vignettes of like going into a blockhouse and seeing them do stuff. And then he's, you know, sneaking by the doorway you know, uh, they end up getting to a gatehouse where a Thunderhawk in Ra Raven Guard colors arrives, offloads a bunch of Raven Guard, and then blows up the the blockhouses. And it's revealed that all the guys in there were Alpha Legion and Raven Guard colors. You know, and it was a a cool sort of Flash Thunder moment where, like two of the Alpha Legion guys, the one that was infiltrating and the one that just arrived kind of round on each other and are like holding blades to each other's throat and call out call signs and realize they're on the same team because they can't tell because of the armor. I thought that was fun. I uh, I really do enjoy how there's the part where they get through, the, there's like that one area and there's a bunch of Alpha Legion defending a gate and they're like, oh man, how are we going to get past those guys? And they're like, oh, we're Raven Guard. We're totally supposed to be here. And they just walk through and nobody talks to them. <laughs> I like, yeah, nobody even bats an eye. There's one where Omegon meets a, a human and the guy's like, oh my lord, yes, right this way. By the way, a bunch of Raven Guard are over in the square over there if you want a rendezvous. And he goes, thanks for the information. And he's like, that was actually really useful because I did not know they were there. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, okay, so now that we're at this part, though, I do want to talk about, this is my gripe with the Agapito, is he a traitor thing, is, it turns out he's not, it's this other commander, and did they even mention this guy before He, now? he had a couple of scenes, it's, um, Commander Solaro, he had a couple of scenes 
they're they're very minimal. Like Solaro's barely on your radar, if at all. And it turns out he was the infiltrator the whole time. As far as his setup goes, when it's revealed he's the traitor, you're not invested in him, so you don't care. Yeah, and this is what I was talking about earlier when we were talking about Paul, how you're saying you didn't like having the Alfarius character be our lens this much. I didn't like how this guy just popped up and then he's like, I'm Alfarius. And I was like, who the fuck are you? But I kind of liked it because that's very Alpha Legion to be the guy in the back. Like he, this guy is literally sitting across the table from Korax and giving reports on the readiness of the equipment and nobody suspects anything. And then at the end it's, Oh my gosh, this was the guy. Yeah. Right? But there wasn't enough time of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and again, it's because they spent so much right. time it's, on Alfarius that this guy didn't get the screen time he needed. Yeah, it's the the alligator you can't see that you have to worry about. Yeah. Well, it it he pops up and they're like, "This commander is actually the one." And I was like, "Wait, there's more than two? Yeah, yeah. So that's what it is. It's give Solero and Omega more screen time to establish that he's the mole, he's the infiltrator, and just cut Alfarius. Yeah. He could have filled that role better. There are actually four of these senior commanders. There's Bran, Agapito, Aloni, and Solaro. Yeah. And Aloni gets mentioned way more. Yeah. Yeah, and I didn't even keep up with him, if I'm being honest. Yeah, it's because they're only there in very short bursts, and it's literally just to be like, oh, weapons are ready, my lord, whenever you need them, kind of thing. And they go, Yeah, okay. basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But so th- this whole ending is very abrupt because reading through the book it's very much set up as agapito is the traitor agapito is the one leaking everything and then he just shows up with a las cannon and a nuke and is like i'm not the traitor and everyone's like huh oh okay (laughs) yeah so he's got he's got a nuke on a dead man switch and he's got these three alpha legionnaires alpha legionnaire infiltrators it Laz Cannon Point, they exchange a few words, and one of the Alpha Legionnaires is like, um, Agapito mentions their Primarch, and one of them goes, you don't know anything about our Primarch, and then the Solaro infiltrator just kills him. It's Alfarius that does it, almost spilling the beans again, and then Solaro kills him for it. And then the other Alfarius and the other Alfarius look at each other and say there's no way out, and so they kill each other. Well... You forget that out of the mist walks 20 custodians. So <laughs> yeah. Oh, saying, yeah, is witnesses. Yeah, we're just going to Thelma and Louise this thing yeah. and drive yeah. off the cliff at each other's arms. And I do love how they say it. Like, one of them stabs one through the chest while the other one shoots him in the head. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and uh, kind of like we talked about a little earlier, the reason why the custodes were brought is so they could have this moment of oh, we're trained in infiltration. These guys are obviously Alpha Legion. And the Raven Guard go, what? That's crazy. Sorry, I've still got the mental image of two Alpha Legionnaires driving a car off the top of the Raven Spire. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Holding hands, obviously. So, I mean, the the battle battle scene kind of winds down after that. I mean, the Raven Guard are victorious. They've repulsed the, uh, the Titan, the Traitor Titans, and the the guild forces, and then it's on to the perfect fortress, which I've got a little bit of beef heat. Go ahead. Well, before that, we need to mention a little bit about what's happening underground. So while the main attack's going on, um, Solaro 
had taken a bunch of the Alpha Legion guys and gone into the basement where they stole the gene tech and destroyed all the notes. And under Omegon's orders, they deposit the genes, all this information and the gene stuff into like a locker in like one of the bunk houses and just abandon it. It's mentioned, there's a, a really short little scene where the raptors are uh, roused by Six as he's dying and given the keys to like the weapons lockers. And they're like, hey, we might be, you know, mutated and that down for the count, but we can still do this and fight for the Legion. And it's a fun little scene. Oh, like when uh, when Six is dying, he's like pointing to something on his chest and one of the raptors is like, oh, pistol. And he goes, no. Key weapons locker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, this is a cool fight scene. The Raptors are shown, you know, despite all the corruption from this warp stuff, they're still a capable fighting force who's loyal. I do appreciate how the Alpha Legion guys are like pulling security down this hallway and they start rushing down and they're like, what the fuck? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, and I think this here proves to Korax that despite their mutations, they can still be a fighting force. Yeah. So the raptors kind of get a little bit of justice there at the end. Yep. Yeah, and then the whole weird Thelma and Luis thing happens, and uh, Omega ends up going to that weapons locker in disguise and taking all the gene tech, and he gets away. He's disguised as a servitor, and and Korax walks straight past him. Yeah, yeah. and there's a, there's a scene towards the end where Omegon is like, I could have hosed him with bolter fire, and I didn't do it. <laughs> yeah. I do um, love when he like reveals himself though that like that Magos that's driving these servitors. He's like, oh, "What's the deal with yeah. this one?" He <laughs> looks up and he's like, "That's a person." <laughs> yeah, and then he just gets squished. You know? Yeah. Again, the Omegon parts are great. They should yeah. have just done more of that. Yeah, they, they were some of the best parts of the book. I really love those. Now, um, my big beef with the Perfect Fortress here at the end is it's kind of our climax. Is that um, throughout the whole story, the Perfect Fortress isn't really on Korax's radar. Is like this is a a key enemy asset that has to be dealt with. Korax is just kind of like, well, this is a pretty good target. We should just go hit it. And it's not like throughout the story they're building up their strength to go take the Perfect Fortress. They build up their strength and then they go looking for a target. Do you see what well, I'm saying? And he, it's it's not a tactically uh, necessarily important thing. It's more just meant to be a middle finger to the traders. Well, and Korax kind of mentions that it's less about the tactical significance and more about the morale, the not morality, uh, the, the morale. morale. Yeah, like the Raven Guard have just been getting their ass kicked over and over. And we really need a win. And the Perfect Fortress is going to be that win for us. Yeah, I was a little bit disappointed with this whole scene because it's painfully brief. The Perfect Fortress sounds really cool, and we spend no time with it at all. If uh, you're using the audiobooks, it's about 30 minutes describing how cool the fortress is and how the Raven Guard are really getting ready, and then it's about 10 minutes of fighting. So uh, Manipul can probably tell you which story it is. I should have asked him before we recorded, but there's another story that runs alongside this one of there's a company of Raven Guard Terminators that were, uh, they were, I think they were all Terran born. And Paul, maybe you know, but Korax didn't like utilizing them because the they deliverers. were so brutal. Huh? The Deliverers. Were they the Deliverers? Yeah. 
You so want to know they, why they were considered so brutal? Because guess who they trained with for most of their time? The First Legion? The, the Jesteran. Oh. The 16th. Yeah. So, right. They, uh, actually, side note, they go absolutely ham in the Siege of Chthonia during that drop site. Like, they, there's so much dust everywhere, and these guys are like, you wouldn't even realize they're in Terminator armor. They're just snaking in with lightning claws, murking everything and bouncing out. It's really cool. Right. So uh, the Deliverers, uh, there's a Deliverers story that runs parallel to this one that is not in the book, but it's about the the company of Deliverers that infiltrate the fortress as Korax is because they see defenses that Korax doesn't. And it's a really cool short story. I'll have to ask Manipal which one it is, but... um, uh, it's just really cool because they get in and they they kill this uh, Emperor's Children captain in there. And he's like, this Emperor's Children captain is like stuck in these dark corridors and he can't actually get, he can't actually hit anybody. He, he can't see where they're coming from and they just take him apart piece by piece. It's really cool. Yeah, it's unfortunate that we have to refer to other stories to talk about how cool this battle was. Right, and that, yeah, that's what I'm getting at. with it. Because there there are really cool aspects to this story that we don't see here. Yeah. We do get, I think, the first like major look of Korax in combat. Um, talking about a little bit about his sort of gift from the Emperor is his ability to basically be invisible to enemies. He's kind of like described as almost like that horror trope of like guy standing in doorway gets ripped out by an unseen force and just chunks come out the door frame. It was a, you know, cool but brief little thing. Um, we get more of the Therian guys. Again, we didn't touch on their story because they hold functionally right. no... The, the Therian cohort the are the Imperial Army that are allied to the Raven Guard. Yeah. And they're kind of put out as like a, a sacrifice piece on the board to draw the Emperor's Children fire while the Raven Guard infiltrate. It's whatever. Yeah, and the Raven Guard just kind of ditch him there. Uh, we do see the uh, prefector of the Therian cohort, uh, Marcus Valerius, later on in a couple more short stories, and he's still kind of dealing with these pre- uh, premonitions from the from whatever about, uh, and they're they're very beneficial to the the loyalist movement. And uh, the, the the only problem with him is is that we don't really get very much of him in this book, and what we do get is pretty non. Uh, uh, doesn't really climax anywhere. Yeah, yeah, it's not really addressed at all. It's they they bring him in and talk about him so that he'll be ready to go in later stories. But for now, he's just kind of in a placeholder spot, which is just sort of a weird thing with this book. There's a lot of that going on. It's kind of like okay, you know, put a pin in the gene seed thing that Elf, that Omegon has taken because that will come up in side thing later um you know raptors are a thing keep that in mind for later this book is just like a lot of setup with no delivery in this book well if we want to talk about delivery we should talk about the epilogue yeah uh, which i really enjoyed the alpha legion hands over what we find out is actually a corrupted version of the gene tech to horus and to uh our good pal fabulous bill of the emperor's children and I, this just made me laugh at the end of this book. So we haven't talked about this, but they have this little cabal emissary that stays in Alpharius and Omegon's quarters. A fifth of tier. 
it's a fifth yeah whatever um it's it is a like worm-like creature uh that is native to a gas giant so it's inside of this like sphere with gas from its its home planet and omegon just kind of picks this thing up and it's like what are you doing we need to make reports to the cabal what are you doing you can't get me in here. He goes, I know I can't break this thing open. And he just walks into a loading bay, leaves him in there, and then just vents it into space. <laughs> I love the line in it where it's like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm taking you to your ship. And he's like, my ship's not here. And he's like, it will be in about a hundred years after you call for it. All right, space the guy. And we just throw him <laughs> out the airlock. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just vent this idiot. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, oh, call me old fashioned. I just really enjoy shooting people out of airlocks. Going back to the the gene stuff with Horace, did you guys notice that he's like, okay, here's the data, give that to Bile, great. And Horace goes, you're keep you're lying to me. You're keeping something from me. He's like, oh yeah, I have the Primark gene material. I'm keeping that. And then they just go, okay, cool. And he, yeah, Elphorus is just out. like, I gave you the copy. I've got the real one. Well, it's not even that. Like, he's like, yeah, I have a copy of the data. He also says, I also have the Primark gene code, like the the blue vial of gel that they've been using. He tells that to Horace's face, and Horace just goes, all right, cool, man. Bye. And just lets I don't like out. how they do Horace in this book. Yeah. At all. <laughs> Horace is so freaking passive. Yeah. Especially after, well, I guess... Nemesis would be much later on. This is basically right after Drop Sight Massacre. But when you get to, like, Nemesis, Horus is a total dictator at that point. No way he would have allowed Elfarius to get away with this. Yeah, but I just remember just hearing that and being like, wait, what? Like, none of them are going to be like, wait, you have you have the actual material? Where is it? We want it. Give it to me. No, they just go, okay, cool, man. See ya. I'm sure the data is enough. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't really like how either of those scenes with our Alfarius. I did like in the first audience at the beginning of the book, Alfarius puts Erebus in his place and is like, who the hell are you to talk to me? I'm a Primark. Know your place, scrub. Not just Erebus, but also Abaddon. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was pretty good. But yeah, I, I mean, overall, it was a really fun read. Um yeah, this book is really engaging. Um, like I said, I was plugged in the whole time. I was really happy with it. And especially, um, I'm not going to say this book moves the needle a lot, but it moves characters from one point to the other and it in a way that you can appreciate the rest of the story. Like, there, the past couple of books that we've had, they just haven't moved the needle. Like, especially the, the last one was so bad. And I'm, I wonder if, like, Brandon, you and I kind of have the... Uh, you know, it's like a saltine in the desert kind of thing. Like, we've been starved for a while, and, you know, we finally got something that's pretty okay, and maybe we're kind of over, yeah, maybe a little too happy with it. I think it's a, a great book. I, I don't know what I'm trying to say here, but, um, you know, even even with a, a couple of bad books in a row, I think this one is a real standout. Yeah, I agree. I really enjoyed it. Um, you know, I don't know about saltine in the desert or all that business, but I... I I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, I started it actually driving back from uh, the Ferex event that we went to in Kansas City. And normally I, for a long drive like that, I can't do an audiobook the entire time. I'll have to flip to like a podcast or just something different. But I did it the entire time. 
because I was just I was into it. So yeah, like I said, really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's it's a really fun book. It's well written. The fight scenes flow really well. It gives you a lot of really cool ancillary like information. Again, stuff like the Primark Project and creation of the Stardees and all that sort of thing. Um, honestly, I think really the only big thing was I didn't like how a lot of the characters were utilized. We've talked about Alfarius a lot, but you know, those sorts of things. But again, like we were saying, those are all kind of nitpicks. The story is just really fun to read. Um, I will say something I've seen online a lot, and it's something I agree with is the only way I would recommend this book though, despite it being really fun is you have to either really like Raven guard and want all the lore they have, which isn't very much, or you're crazy like us and you're trying to just read every book. Um, if you're somebody who's just trying to get the highlights and get, you know, basically the core heresy experience, this book can be skipped because there's, I mean, outside of like Fabius Bile getting the gene product and maybe setting up a few characters, you really don't get a whole lot in terms of the larger narrative. And even like the Fabius Bile thing, that's like a, a, a D plot at best that's going to get mentioned periodically in other books, but it's not going to hold a lot of significance until you get to after the heresy and the scouring. So it's setting up a lot of stuff that we're not going to get a payoff for, for a very long time. Yeah. I don't know. I, I enjoyed it. I wouldn't call this one a skip. If you're, if you only care about the overarching plot, I guess so. But if you just want a good, enjoyable Warhammer story, I think this has that in spades. Yeah, absolutely. Warwick, my friend, do you want to talk about the next book? Yes. It's one of my favorites. The chattiest of books. It is No No Fear by Dan Abnett. And it will be going over the ambush at Kalf. And we, I think we're going to have a big guest on for that one. Uh, things are looking good as of now. Uh, anything can happen obviously right. but the so we are hopeful to have a big guest for that yeah i'm really excited i can't wait to talk to him um not gonna tell you yet but uh definitely tune in for that next book episode we'll have a hobby roundtable coming out in a couple of weeks we're going to be returning to form my, my brother maniple should be back by then and then no no fear in december so looking forward to that so why don't you guys go ahead and like and subscribe to this podcast, share it with all your friends, go ahead and look us up on social media. We are Legion cast, a horror Heresy podcast on Twitter and Instagram and shoot us an email at legioncast 18 at gmail.com. Thanks again for hanging out, everybody. I'm glad you stopped by. And if you made it this far, certainly uh, be sure to share that out there. Why don't you guys say goodbye? Yeah. Thanks for having me on again, guys. Always a lot of fun. Yep, thanks for stopping by, everybody, and remember to march in fortune.